Hello and welcome to React Roundup. I'm your host today, Nader Dabit. Today on our panel, we have Lucas Heisch. Hello, everybody. Our newest panelist, Thomas Alot. Welcome back, Thomas. Hello. <laughs> hey, folks. I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I, I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the backend without having to actually program the backend, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com. You're you're a natural at this. Have you done some podcasts in the past? Um no, <laughs> I've I've dabbled. I've I've been uh, I've been taking a public speaking course since I was a little kid. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, awesome. We don't really have a special guest today. We're the special guests. So, but we do have a pretty interesting topic. So, Lucas, do you want to kick off the conversation around uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today? Yes. So, so let me start. So, let me talk about the situation I've been. Uh, I've encountered a couple of times and I talked to friends in different companies that came to the same situation. The company is growing. Now we have five, six different teams creating front-end applications. Everything is good. And then we feel the need to share some components because we're thinking that the application should have the same design guidelines, right? We should not be rewriting those stuff. And then one of the possible solutions that people come to that is create a team that will be like a, I don't know, a front-end foundation team, front-end infrastructure team, front-end theme team. I've, I've heard like a lot of different names. That is a team that create uh, the React components so other teams uh, will consume that. And... First reaction to that to that uh, problem was like, of course, it makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. And everything is going to be <laughs> super easy. Every team will only create their front-end applications by uh, uh, like pick and choose. And front-end Yeah, what possibly can go wrong? <laughs> so it turns out this problem is a really hard problem to solve. And I've encountered a lot of uh, issues in the companies that I worked with. So uh, my experience with that is that I am still to, to, to see it like work seamlessly. Uh, there are always like problems here and there. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't work well. But like, I would love to understand like, how can we solve this problem well? Because it seems that at some point, at some scale, we need such a team. So maybe that's the first issue that we should talk about. Do we need such a team at some point in the companies? So the the team that will be in charge with making these, these will be like display components, basically, like UI components almost? Maybe. Uh, so I've been in situations where there are even like business rules. So if you have like a, uh, I don't know, payment form 
that is going to be used in more than one application, there will be like business rules there too. Hmm. Well, uh, what would you use something like Storybook? I know we're getting into some technical stuff, and we haven't yeah. really even talked about the idea in, in the first place. Mm-hmm. But it seems like <laughs> Storybook would fit into this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Way. There is always some kind of style guide. Yeah, Storybook will, will be uh, today is the default, right? But like some years ago, there was no Storybook, so there was like a bunch of like custom made applications that were just like a showcase. Yeah, what's for the those new components? thing that uses MDX? Uh, it's kind of along in the kind of the same yeah. space. There is like a style guidist. Yeah. Uh, there is docs. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, do, do we really need a team? Like, I could to, tell you share? Like, some backstory of, of how I've seen this go um, mm-hmm. at a couple of different companies uh, Cloudera, um, Facebook, and mm-hmm. then uh, a startup whose name I, I shall not mention. <laughs> The kind of the patterns that I've seen is that when you try to to do it too soon, like when you don't have many engineers mm-hmm. on the the team and you try to do it, it ends up being a, a huge debacle. But once you grow to be, you know, bigger than, you know, you're working on multiple products at the same time with multiple teams, that's when it becomes useful. But it all boils down to, to me, it all boils down as kind of like, you have you really have to thread the needle between um, freedom, um, freedom slash chaos and control slash um, too much control. <laughs> <laughs> like some people freak out if like oh no there's strict rules like no and rebel against mm-hmm. that and other people rebel against having too much freedom slash chaos and freak out about that. So it's a really hard balance to strike. Yeah. So so you said about it can be too soon. So is it a matter of when? So do you think there is a point in companies that we need to have like some, some people work in the shared code? Yeah, it, it, it really all depends on your goals. Like for, for Cloudera, you know, they, they're building systems and tools for like big data stuff and, and really having a unique kind of front end UI kind of opinion didn't make any sense. So it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for them to invest a lot of time and energy and focus in kind of leading the industry mm-hmm. then. But, you know, that was before React and, and a lot of these things. There weren't a lot of, like, things you could just take off the shelf and use. Mm. So, like, my recommendation for, for smaller teams is you want to have that stability. You want to be able to build with a common set of components for all the, the speed that you get. But being able to, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants trust that you have like accessibility <laughs> handled and tested and maintained by somebody you don't employ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very useful. So like taking something off the shelf and using it is huge. But when you're like Facebook and you like you live or die on the, you know, the micro interactions, you need to own that for yourself. But then again, if you try to do it too soon, it can be a huge distraction and actually slow you down. Well, what do you think about that, Nader? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, to me, like the, the ideal workflow for something like this would be that the team that's in charge of building these components, once they've shipped the component, they are no longer in charge of them at all. That means that the person mm. that's consuming those ends up <clears throat> needing to make changes, then they're in charge of those changes. Because I feel like the bottleneck would be like the person creates this component, they transition it to the person that's going to be actually implementing it. 
And then they have some small changes. I think the bottleneck of actually implementing the, that, that discussion, that conversation back and forth would be the slowing down. I think the person consuming it would be <clears throat> taking it. And, and, and from there, if they needed to make any updates, like they could, they could then take ownership of it. If that makes any sense, that seems like it would be a more ideal workflow than actually having that person take it back uh, who, who created it in the first place and then, uh, and then, you know, making updates. Yeah. So now, now you're touching uh, what I think it's, it's the root of the question, which is all, all about ownership. Yes. Uh, Cole, it's uh, one thing that, 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 that I see that happens a lot with these platform teams, infrastructure teams is since they're not building the product anymore, since they're building like yeah. a meta something, losing touch with the product usually is very bad for like the sense of like doing what's important. Does it make sense? Like yeah. you're doing what's important for the, for the design system and not for the product. But the design system is, is like an implementation detail, right? The design system is not your final product. The final product is the product itself. So how do you make sure that, that these people working on this on this uh, components have ownership? So here at ZocDoc, we have uh, one project. It's our component SDK that all the teams, every time there's something shared, the teams themselves like make PRs and they, and they contribute to, to this project, right? So that's more the scenario that Nader said. There is no team owning this, uh, this project, right? So like all the teams are like together working on that. But that brings another problem is that no one has ownership of the component SDK itself. So that project tends to get like bloated and to get some ass. Now people avoid using it a little bit because it's like cumbersome. Right. So, like, if you don't have, you can have like ownership on one side, and then you lose on the other. So, this is the puzzle. This is the trade-off that drives. That's a tricky balance. The last seven years of my life. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the way that Facebook balanced it is that they they had like a, a few people like dedicated to owning and maintaining uh, the UI infrastructure, and they have for a long time. And, you know, it, it's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. I haven't been there in a couple of years, so, it, you know, who knows what it's like now. But <laughs> w- what I always thought was brilliant is that they had the the um, kind of the framework people embed with specific product teams for a while. So it would be as if they were actually on that product team. So they would get to to really empathize with not just the, the, the team, but the, the end user, what the, you know, where the rubber hits the road of like, why are we building and maintaining all this stuff in the first place? But for the long-term ownership and maintenance and bug fixes and tweaks and cleanup and you know, all the stuff that you've mm-hmm. got to do to take anything seriously, you really need to, to own the whole story. Is not just how do you get this stuff to exist in the first place. It's like, what do you do when it breaks and whose problem is that? And how, what roadmap does that fit on? Is that who's being, you know, incentivized to own this stuff? Is it taking away from, is it going to hurt somebody's career to, to <laughs> make the UI infrastructure good? Like that's broken. Like yeah. <laughs> hurt somebody's career to do the right thing, fix your stuff. Okay. So, yeah. So the teams usually, uh, the, the last teams that, that I've worked with, uh, we always have like a design, at least like one design person in the team, right? Yeah. 
So even though they they are part of the big design team, each person is allocated to a particular team. That there is always like one design allocated to a particular team. Nice. So do you think the same thing is is that, is that the same way? It's done in Facebook. Like there is a one like front end platform person allocated in the different teams, just like a designer allocated in different teams. Not exactly. Like um, it was more, you know, there were individual product teams that had, you know, all the people that they had. But then the there was the kind of the cross cross cutting concerns mm-hmm. uh, kind of teams, like uh, like the React core team. You know, people in the React core team will embed on different product teams for a little while to, as they're working through different things, to see how that stuff works in reality with real things. Or they'll like work with like the ads team or whatever, which is always the building the most comp. Whoever's doing the most complicated thing using their infrastructure, they'll embed mm-hmm. with them to make sure that it's working for them. See how it's being used in reality. You know, work closely with the people who are actually using it. Nice. So, so the individuals they're still focused on their thing, which is the the infrastructure, the UI, you know, the shared stuff, but working day-to-day very closely with the other nice. people. So it's kind of both. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. When you say design, are you actually talking about people that are using like Photoshop and, and yeah, yeah. things like that? Okay, got you. Yeah, I think it kind of Photoshop for design? <laughs> or yeah, what is it, Sketch <laughs> these days? Zeppelin, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't know. I think it also has a lot to do with the size of your team and yeah. um, even larger teams may not do this, but the smaller teams certainly won't be doing this, I think, or at least in my experience. Um, and then the larger teams may or may not be taking this approach. And it seems like this type of thing might be a good way to onboard junior engineers. Um, they don't have to understand the entire system to create these components it would be an efficient way to kind of like bring in uh, and onboard new developers and and be able to kind of offload some serious work and give them challenging things to do while you're still contributing to the project. That's a good point. There's always some new version of a button somebody needs to make. That's (laughs) interesting. All right. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, the process issue, it seems that that the solution is is how is we need to solve the ownership puzzle first right so if if these teams have uh, some kind of like your the results of your design system are tied to like the the success of our design system is very like tied to 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 the success of your users right yeah so yeah i imagine like if you're creating react inside facebook and facebook does not use react that's a bad That's a sign. <laughs> That's a problem, right? So you need to make sure that React is all, is actually like solving the problems of Facebook, right? Yeah. To make sure that, that it's using. That's where it came from in the first place is it was extracted out of solving hard problems. Then they're like, this could be useful for more than just us. Yeah, this is really interesting. So it's a ownership thing. I have... Other questions about such a design system and such like a and such a, a front end team. One other issue is like, should you have a centralized team deciding on components, but should also this team decide on architecture 
And by architecture, I mean like, okay, so I need a server-side rendered application because this application will be a landing page, needs SEO, stuff like that. Uh, should this front-end team be the ones pro providing these solutions? Or is it like we have, we also maintain a Next.js template or something like that, you know, or yeah. a Gatsby solution? So like who should drive? Do you think this, this also benefits from having like a centralized team? It's... Kind of Facebook's philosophy is two things. Like when it comes to ownership, nobody is somebody else. Nothing is somebody else's problem. But on the flip side, you know, some people are incentivized and gold and whatever based on this stuff. So anybody can jump in and fix anything, you know, as long as they get their diff approved or you know reviewed or whatever. But also, what was the what was the other thing? <laughs> I got confused. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Infrastructure like that. So the the other philosophy is. Um, there, there are no sticks, only carrots. So you can, you can only, like with, with engineers, especially really high-level engineers, you can't tell them what to do. It's like they know what they're doing. They're going to pick the best tool for the job. But if you have a lot of common patterns or if you, you're, you feel very strongly that this is the right way to do it, you incentivize doing it that way by focusing all of your tooling and your building and like, okay, you're a random product team. You can do whatever you want. But if you do it your own way, you're going to be judged based on that. If you do it this way, you're not going to be judged by picking the thing off the shelf and using it because somebody else, some other team owns it. So it's probably better for you to just use that thing. But if you know best, go for it. And you better know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. The, uh, the way that engineering teams are kind of handled with, React in general might be a good conversation to kind of have yeah. either on this episode or on a future episode because, you know, depending on whether or not you're doing mobile application development or not or whether, um, you know, you're, you're targeting other platforms, React Native might even fit into this discussion and universal components. Yeah, that's kind of a pipe dream, unfortunately, at, at the moment. <laughs> You know, it's 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 hard to get right. It's not it's not easy, but it but it's being done. You know, I've seen it being done. I had to, we had this this discussion not too long ago at Amazon. We had an internal React Native conference, and we had cool. a couple of the Facebook engineers from the React Native team come and present. And uh, we actually had a panel discussion, and this topic came up. And I had the same insight or the same you know observation in my experience. Uh, it's not easy to get right, and it's kind of you know, it was in, in my head a pipe dream, but they actually laid out a bunch of uh, examples of it of it working pretty well. Well, for example, React Native Web would be like the the you know the thing that you would use right now. Um, Twitter, their mobile application is actually, or their their mobile website is actually, and their entire website maybe I'm not positive about that. Don't quote me on that. But I know their mobile website was deployed with React Native Web. So if you can yeah. build something like Twitter with React Native Web then you should be able to, you know, do pretty much anything. I know they probably did a lot of custom um, work there, but it's definitely a, a very popular subject that I've seen with a lot of the companies I've consulted with. Yeah. What, what I saw work well at Facebook, they, um, I remember the, the Facebook interface guidelines team, they, they separate, separated out the, so there's the, the, concept of all the components and then the visuals of all the components and then there's the implementation of all the components. 
So what the, the FIG team did was they kind of separated all these concerns and, and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to define the concepts. These are what the components are. These are kind of the conceptual properties of them. This is before React, really. And, you know, here's what they look like on, on the web and on iOS and on Android. They're all conceptually the same, but still felt normal on each platform. And, you know, these are the different versions of them. And here are the different implementations of them. So there was, there was like a, um, an iOS native implementation, Android native implementation, a web native <laughs> implementation. And then eventually there became a React implementation. I was building like tools and scripts and, and stuff for that team. And I was kind of toying around with like a WYSIWYG editor mm -hmm. thing for that, which was kind of cool. This is before React, unfortunately. It would have been so much easier with React. Oh, man. <laughs> and that worked really well because then you could talk about, when, when you're talking about a design, you could just talk about it. Okay, these are the components. It's composing these components together. It doesn't require creating any new components. And then the individual engineering teams can say, okay, we already have implemented all these components. We haven't implemented that one yet, but that other platform has. So we, we just have to, it kind of, scopes down and pairs down what actual work needs to be done to build a UI on each platform. Yeah. So this should, this should be like one step before starting to do the universal component st uh, stuff, right? Yeah. So it's kind of universal conceptually, but not universal implementation. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So uh, this is uh, an interesting problem because I think this is a, a bigger problem. I think that most of the problems we have in the software is about implementation, rather the concepts. That I think that that in a lot of times we throw away ideas because implementations are bad, but the concepts yeah. are good. So that's why I even don't like to automate things too early and to yeah. like before having a React design system. Should we have like a design design system? So you know, like this is the yeah. the, the thing that, that I think like before automating tasks on your I don't know CI environment and stuff. Should we have like good checklists? <laughs> yes, yes. You know this kind of thing yes. uh, because like a lot of time when we start doing the implementation of stuff, uh, we encounter like new problems. We're making we're making this new problem. We're creating a new problem that we are solving. And this new problem might not be like the, the uh, we throw away the water with the baby. Is that, <laughs> right. is that an expression? The, the baby yeah. with the bathwater. The baby with the bathwater, <laughs> right. So that's the first uh, disclaimer of this episode. I think that design systems are amazing and they should exist. 
we were talking about like, should we have this, should we have these uh, big project of already implemented React uh, components that are maintained by a team, right? This is the... yeah. This is the the complicated part, and then if you if you start to talk about universal stuff, when, when you start like going so deep into the implementation, then I think that a lot of people like you're gonna bring you're gonna deliver an iOS component to a team, and the team and the team was like, oh, this person is so disconnected from my iOS reality here, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the the bad implementation of that particular component may like throw away all like the whole idea of like having a consistent design system. Yeah, that's where like if you're going to do this, you you have to know what it is you're getting into. Like doing a design system is a big project. It it takes a long time and you have to do so much work up front before any code is written to define the standards. Okay, what what are because not only do you have to have the design system itself, but you have to have like a meta design system that tells you, okay, what are the rules we're going to play by to build these? And in order yeah. to come up with that, those standards, you have to try out a bunch of different things. The principles, right? Yeah, what you principles know? work, what are our actual engineers going to adopt and use? There's so much work that has to go into that that I see these like tiny little startups trying to do a, their own custom design system. And it's like, dude, you're going to get you're either going to do it fast and it's going to suck or you're going to do it slow and you're going to waste all your time. Yeah. Like as far as design systems go, like I'm kind of curious where the style guide fits into this whole discussion and where the design system like fits in between the two. I honestly haven't had a lot of experience um, on larger teams doing a design system, but I have had experience working with the style guide that was kind of defined for us at the company so, um, you know, I'm kind of curious, like, where those two fit in this discussion and where they overlap. There's, like, a spectrum. Like, I mean, you've got to have some standards of, like, what colors do we use? What fonts do we use? What sizes of those fonts do we use? Versus, like, having a, a, a conceptual theory of every single thing you do. And, like, it kind of, you know, you scale it based on how much time and attention you want to put into it. It's like, you've got to have something. You can't just be cookie cutter generic. You know, we used all the default settings of uh, material design. Ship it. <laughs> right, right. And a lot of times, um, you know, if you have a designer that designs literally every single thing, that's great. But most of the time, you know, we, we get designs, but we don't have designs for every possible situation. There's always going to be things that come up. And um, yeah. you know, it seems to be like such yeah. a, an interesting area to be talking about because there's a lot of gray area. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a design expert, right? But like, I imagine that uh, the, the material design website falls more to the like, it's a design system category. It's exp explaining to you the principles, guidelines. Yeah. It's showing like examples of components and stuff. And what we think about the tech style guide and the tech storybook is, is like actual showcase of implementations of that design system. Does it make sense? Yeah. An actual library of React stuff. Uh, there's a, a fun story about, about that. My, my brother in the 90s, he worked uh, in Cartoon Network. Awesome. Yeah, he worked. And he worked right at the time that I believe it was probably the coolest company to work for in the world when awesome. 
all those new like Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's <laughs> Lab uh, cartoons that were being released, right? So he would create websites for uh, for those uh, cartoons. Oh, that's old school. And they had. Uh, he brought. Uh, he he showed me once that that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my side. They brought the design. He brought home. Uh, the design system for Powerpuff Girls. Oh, dude, I want to see that so bad. <laughs> so it was so cool. It was a book. It was a printed book with guidelines on how to make websites for Powerpuff Girls. So first of all, there were like all the colors that you can use and the color patterns. Uh. And there was uh, all this this technical part. There was also like principles in terms of like, the Powerpuff Girls, you cannot depict them like fighting evil during the night because they're kids. In the night, they should be sleeping. Right. doesn't make sense. You, they also should not be fighting. To, you should not give signals that they're doing this on school time because they should be at school. Right. You know, things like that. And the Dexter Labs, the same thing. Like you should never, uh, the Dexter's parents should never interact with the Dexter's lab. Because it's not clear if it's real or if it's something from his imagination. Oh, wow. So you cannot give it away on the website. So there's a bunch of like principles in that. And the interesting part is that like most of the book was illustrations with a file name of where the, 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 the image files are in a CD ROM. Oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> like, that, that's so 90s. Like, that, when I got into things, I got, I started in print design. And so that kind of thing was totally normal. Like, yeah. you'd get, like, you'd ha- hire this huge marketing company to come up with your branding, and that would be the deliverable. They'd give you, the, mm-hmm. like, the, the books with the CD-ROMs and all the di- digital assets and everything. And they'd just, like, here, we've solved design for mm-hmm. you forever. You can never change anything. it's just not reality when it comes to like startups right now it's like we've inherited all these concepts from the print world and we're kind of trying to emulate our you know the the people who trained the people who trained us and it's just like why are we doing this again like where does the rubber hit the road yeah yeah it's but like we all agree that if you have a bunch of products being created you need some consistency in the yeah. visual communication and user experience, right? Absolutely. And from time to time, you need some larger components that have some business logic that you want them to be shared to. Like if you have, like as I said, like a payment form or a login form, yeah, you should try to have this consistent between applications as much as you can. So that's a good question. Like, where, when do you decide that, okay, this is the kind of stuff that's owned by, like, the design system and mm-hmm. the, the shared components versus there's just a bunch of random shared stuff that we use. Like, they're almost always the same thing, but should they be? Yeah. <laughs> should you have different teams maintaining these things? Should you have everybody maintaining them? But if everybody's maintaining them, is anybody maintaining them? Yeah. And how do you differentiate between the different types of components, right? Yeah. There is this uh, atomic design pattern. I don't know if you heard about it. That Give separate- us an overview. Yeah, it's yes, separate- I kind of had that. Uh, I had that in, implemented in a company I worked with a while back. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so let me explain a little bit what it is, and then you, then you tell why you're a huge fan. So it separates uh, the simplest way of thinking about it. It's separating your your components in like three 
buckets. Like the first bucket is like the atoms. These are like oh, yeah, dumb yeah. components that are super simple, do not have any logic in them. They are visual uh, atoms of your of your uh, page, like a button, an input, a right. And then you have like uh, cells, which would be like a combination of, of those that have start having some meaning. Like the right. login form is a is a is a cell and stuff. And then you have like the organisms, which is like a collection of cells that would be like a whole page or a whole application that is a combination of of the cells, right? In the cell uh, part, you may have also some some logic. So in the in the React world, you can say that you may have containers. Uh, like cells have DNA, so there's something. <laughs> yeah, like they, you would, you you may have like the fetch data or part of your GraphQL query or how to transform data right. in your cell, and you definitely have them on your organisms. So tell us, Nader, how was your experience with them, with this? Well, to me, it just didn't make a lot of sense as far as like a lot of the components that I felt like we were building maybe didn't completely fall into one of these categories, if that makes any sense. Um, and we were like, I mean, at least I was like forced to make decisions like, is this an atom or a cell or a molecule? <laughs> or, you know? but, like, but also it just seemed... It's a button. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it just kind of seemed unintuitive. And then when you start adding, you know, different pieces into a large application, it just felt kind of weird. And I felt like I was kind of like putting, you know myself in a position by using that, that I just didn't enjoy it and it just didn't make a lot of sense. I don't know. And I, I don't have like a really good reason. I just didn't really, didn't really like it. Yeah. It, it's very tempting to go down the rabbit hole and just totally nerd out with, I'm going to categorize everything. Or like how many, how many categories of categories and subcategories <laughs> can we get? And, and then you, you're just like so excited about it, like organizing all the concepts that you're like, oh wait, why are we doing this again? Yeah, it makes sense. All right, it's just buttons. <laughs> yeah. One thing, like, at least if you start to actually do the categorization work, maybe you just, like, make a bunch of unnecessary questions at that point, right? But uh, I think that the framework, uh, thinking of that those things exist, at least give... Uh, one thing that I like about it is that I believe that such a shared project, shared components, should go to the atom side of the spectrum, that's when things will be most successful. Like if you think of a button, a shared button that has no logic, it's only like a callback and I don't know what, like a type prop that will be like primary, secondary, something like that. If you have something like that, this is where when shared code is, is, most, is mostly successful. Everybody uses the button, everybody's happy. Yeah. And then you start having the payment form shared. And then the payment form for that particular page is a little bit different. For that other page, oh, you don't need that. For this page, you need a little bit more. And then you end up with this Frankenstein components that are being maintained by people who do not, not have like contacts in uh, of all the use cases. It's really difficult. So maybe the success of such a team is also defining the right scope for such a shared uh, infrastructure, right? Yeah, I, I guess it all boils down to ownership. Like if, if you have some kind of shared component, 
like is it owned by the product or is it owned by the the brand or is it owned by the team or is it owned by some individual engineer and then your company's broken but um <laughs> for example what stripe is really cool because like stripe has their own like checkout thing you can customize it but like Stripe owns that whole problem. Like you don't have to worry about that. And I'm sure Stripe has competitors that are doing the same thing, whatever. But, you know, then you know that they're owning that. You don't have to worry about it. So then every t everywhere in the universe where you're just dropping in a, I want to get money from people, you can just trust that some other team is owning it. But like internally in a company, if you want to drop in this component, like, do you want to own it? Does your product team live or die by the things in that component? Then you should own that thing. If you don't, if it's just a thing you need to rely on as a, a level of absolute certainty that you can build on top of, then you need somebody else to own it. Or you yeah. need to own it yourself and just suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it makes sense. I'm trying to find now a link to uh, one presentation of uh, it's of a successful search. Uh, it was a project that, that, that was successful in that regard. They were building this uh, common components project, but they were an agency creating a bunch of small products for particular, for particular clients. So getting the components right was like, a big part, it was like, the, there was a big ownership in, in for, for that team in particular because like you're, you're building a lot of different apps for particular clients, like in a, the frequency of creating new applications, like they, they needed to make things work. Yeah. So there's that too. Like the ownership may, may be different depending on how, is it your product that you don't, you don't create new applications or new websites really often? Or are you an agency working for someone that is always creating uh, new stuff and demanding a lot of smaller websites being created with a higher frequency? So you gain a lot of productivity by having stuff like already built for you when you're just creating a new page for, for, for every week, I don't know, every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, the, definitely. I, I think the the um, what's it called? The agency model ma makes a lot of sense. I spent a bunch of years doing that kind of programming, doing marketing sites and stuff, and it was very useful to have off the shelf stuff that you could use. But I always built everything from scratch. I mean, that's partly just you know my own personality problems, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was very useful to have like mood tools. I I, I highly I heavily used Mutuals back in the day, so much so that I, you know, found some bugs with it and, you know, you know, ended up joining the project as a core contributor because I was contributing to it so much. But even like on an every individual project, it, it was very compartmentalized. Although I was the one doing the work on both things, it was very easy to say, okay, this is work for this website versus this is Mutuals work. And I think that that can work Mm -hmm. Or actually, it, it kind of brings me to the picks. What, my top pick for this week, I've probably picked it many times, which is E-Myth, <laughs> which is, you know, you can have the same person can wear multiple hats. You're in like, you're in vision mode. You're focused on what's the vision of the thing. 
And then you're like in manager mode. You're like, okay, how do we implement this vision? What are the processes that need to be done? And then you're in technician mode where you're actually, okay, pick a process, actually work through the steps and get it done. And it's, you're very intentional with what hat you're wearing at any given time, even though you're the, mm -hmm. you're the same person the whole time. That's nice. Yeah. So, yeah, but, uh, let, let, let me try to understand the conclusion to, to, to this uh, talk that we have today. So, I think we still do not solve my seven-year <laughs> battles with how to solve this problem. We did not solve it in 40 minutes, but... I think that it seems that the solution is by handling ownership well, right? We need to, to get really well-defined ownership of the things that we are building. Short-term and long-term. Yeah, short-term and long-term. So this is the puzzle we need to solve. And it's really interesting because it's a code programming puzzle, another one that is solved by how to deal with people and how to deal with process. <laughs> yep. It all boils down to people. <laughs> That's really interesting. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So I guess since we are wrapping up, we'll go ahead and get to the picks. Uh, Lucas, do you have any picks? My pick uh, for the, the week is based on, on this subject that we we're talking about. It's a really good presentation from, I probably won't be able to pronounce his name, Javier Lefebvre. Oof. Uh, he presented at React Full in March 2019 about kickstarting libraries of shared React components for multiple teams. And it seems that he had a really good uh, experience with it. And it's a really interesting presentation. So this is my pick for, for the week. Cool. Uh, Thomas, do you have any picks? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I mentioned, uh, the E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. And there's also, since we're talking design, the classic, the design of everyday things or how to not make people hate you and themselves by not <laughs> making buttons be bad and lame. And also there's um, what we were talking about before is Atomic Design by Brad Frost. It's a website, bradfrost.com. Cool. Uh, my pick is a book that I just finally finished publishing and it kind of just went to paperback in this last week. It's React Native in Action. So if you're looking to learn React Native, yes. check it out. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Wow. Plug, 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 plug. Yes. Yeah, yeah can I get a free copy of that because I'm your friend? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yes. you can get it on, uh, people listening, they can get it on Amazon or they can get it on Manning Books. 
website, or if you see me at a conference, I'll, I'll be at React Amsterdam, I'll be at uh, Magnolia JS, nice, and I'll be at a few other conferences with a stack of them, passing them out and awesome. doing some signings and stuff. Neither. So. It's a lot of work to write a book. I've been close to mm. people writing books, so you're yeah. a hero. <laughs> a lot. It took almost two years. Dude. Wow. Well, you know, with React Native, the API has changed a lot. And uh, when you're working with a publisher like Manning or any publisher, there's a, a pretty intense editing, copy, copywriting, mm-hmm. editing process. So, but yeah, we wanted to make sure, like, when I knew a change was coming, I wanted to hold it back until we could actually be as up-to-date as possible. It's been available for purchase digitally for a long time, which I think is the best way to, to sell a book, honestly, in a, in a tech book is digitally. But uh, Manning um, likes to also put their books into print, so we did this one on print as well. That's nice. It feels Let's- good to have the, the actual paper thing. You can you know use a highlighter. It's not, it feels yeah, good. It's cool to it's cool to have it. I mean, it may go out of um, it may be you know not up to date in about a year, but I think <laughs> most of the stuff in there is, is going to be uh, around for you know at least a year or two. There'll be some new APIs that come out, but it's not going to actually make the code. I don't think not work. It'll it just won't cover everything. You know. Nice. We should make an episode on the book. Yeah, totally. We'll yeah, do totally. a React Native episode. Oh, I have a lot to say about React Native. <laughs> okay, good. There's a but lot going on with React Native. <laughs> nice. That's so nice. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening. That wraps up this episode of React Roundup. Have a good uh, week. Bye bye, everyone. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. Mm-hmm.